This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from KQED News, The Laura Flanders Show, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Activism from the Next System Project, The Majority Report, and then somewhere in the middle there, you're going to hear maybe an unexpected clip from the Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan. There is a small movement, but one that's gaining steam, to stop using the phrase sharing economy. That's the term much of the media uses to refer to companies like Uber, Airbnb, and TaskRabbit. Critics say these companies have nothing to do with sharing. Sam Harnett explores how the term sharing economy came to be and why some people want want to banish it. These days, the most recognized businesses in the so-called sharing economy are built around apps where you pay for stuff, rides, or places to stay. This is far from the original idea of the sharing economy, says Neil Gorenflow. It's sharing through and through. It's where individuals are working with one another to create the products and also provision the services that we need to live and live well. Gorenflow runs Shareable.net, a hub for co-ops and websites like FreeCycle, where people give things away. He says the real sharing economy picked up after the 2008 financial crisis. It was utopian, anti-capitalist, all about reducing consumption. Then companies like Uber and Airbnb took off. Now, for most people, they define the sharing economy. They're sort of like the sharing economy death stars. You know, they're so aggressive. They raise so much money, you know. They're taking up all of the oxygen in the discussion, you know, in some ways, which is really frustrating for us. Gorenflow says it's a classic example of corporations co-opting the feel-good language of social activism. The phrase sharing economy is particularly powerful, says Jana Eckhart, a professor of marketing at Royal Holloway University of London. It facilitates consumers thinking that they are part of a larger movement. Ironically, Eckhart says, instead of being about conservation, the phrase now puts a whole new positive spin on consumption. You're not paying for a ride or a room. You're part of a community sharing. People want to believe that the consumption activities that they're doing have a larger purpose. Eckhart is one of many pundits and reporters trying to kill the sharing economy label. So is Alex Hearn. He reports on tech for The Guardian newspaper in England. He says the argument is so simple, even little kids would understand. Paying is not sharing. You'd be a very, very odd parent if you did tell your child, remember, you've got you've to share your toys with your sister and she's got to pay you the market rate for what those toys are worth. People like Hearn are pushing for new terms, the on-demand economy, and some call it the access economy. Hearn uses gig economy, which he says focuses on the people actually doing the work for companies like Uber and TaskRabbit. It's both more accurate and it highlights what to me is the most important aspect of these companies, which is their relationship to labor. Hearn says the media is really to blame for the phrase getting out of control. He says reporters jumped on the sharing economy trend after the financial crisis. Then they started using the term for all kinds of new tech companies. Now, Hearn says, it's hard for news outlets to stop using it. It's a term which is widely understood. It's used to refer to hundreds of billions of dollars worth of companies. It's it's not going anywhere soon. Sharing economy was on the short list for the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2015. Catherine Connor Martin is the head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Sharing economy is defined as an economic system in which assets or services are shared between private individuals, either for free or for a fee, typically by means of the Internet. Yes, the online Oxford Dictionary officially defines paying for something as part of the sharing economy.
as does Webster's and other dictionaries. If people who are passionate about this shame the media into no longer using this, the word this way and instead using it in a more restricted sense, then we would be obliged to reflect that change. Well, Neil Gorenflow has been trying for five years to no avail. He and others in the original sharing economy have started giving up on the phrase. Now they've got a new name. You know, the term for it now is it's called platform cooperativism. Wait, what? Platform cooperative, <laughs> right? Platform cooperativism. All right. Or you just say platform co-ops. Okay. Not quite as sexy as the sharing economy. Then again, if it were that good, a corporation would probably come along and scoop it up. I'm Sam Harnett for KQED News. It's always more fun to share with everyone. It's always more fun to share with everyone. If you have one, here is something you can learn. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders. Today on the show, rewarding work in healthy communities. Time and again, that's what we hear that people want. And that's just what most don't have in the USA today. As Thomas Piketty in his surprise bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, has driven home, We live in a nation where the richest 0.1%, those with 20 million or more, have doubled their share of our nation's wealth since the 1960s. And as that wealth compounds in the financial market, so does the poverty of others. And the growing gap is tearing our society apart. Now, here at our program, we see many people who believe in the potential of worker-owned cooperatives, where every worker has an equal voice and a share in the company's profits. We've heard that co-ops give worker owners a way to have more say, and sometimes more income and more stability in their communities. But we've also heard concerns. Can small democratic co-ops end poverty? Probably not. Can bigger ones survive the pressures of the market? Finally, can co-ops that do survive in the market change society if instead of challenging the system, they're just operating within it? Our next guest, Chris Mackin, the founder and owner of Ownership Associates, doesn't necessarily think the market is the problem. For almost 40 years, he's been advising workers, owners, and unions on how workers can become owners of their own businesses. Chris, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Good to be here. So let's first talk about how you got into this. It was early days to be thinking about democratic ownership in business right. in the 70s, right? 1977. Yes, I was a graduate student who was interested in ideas of democracy. I was actually an early school reform person involved in democratic schools. Uh, but as I sort of studied history and the people I was meeting, I became convinced that the problems of our economy are upstream from the schools and exist in terms of uh, the economy and economic structures. And so I got interested in in ideas for bringing democracy to the economy. And what did you study? I mean, you were at Harvard at that point. I think you even wrote your dissertation on this topic. Yes, I did. I got a doctorate in human development from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I wrote a thesis called The Social Psychology of Ownership, a case study of a democratically owned firm. I followed 
a worker-owned cooperative construction company uh, that had converted to worker ownership and, and was gracious enough to let me in to uh-huh. sort of chronicle what went on there. And what did go on there? How did they fare? Well, they fared well uh, for some period of time. In fact, it was a, a an example of one of the things I hope we could talk about, about the promise of conversions of established businesses um, to worker ownership, uh, which in many ways could be easier than startup businesses. And this was a conversion of a, a founding owner decided he wanted to move on and do something different, and he sold to the employees, and it worked very well. You talk about four verbs of democratizing ownership. People people really do sort of get access to this idea in very different ways. I mean, some some have first tuned into it because of the courageous story of the workers in Argentina and some courageous stories here in the United States where workers are literally taken over businesses, have expropriated them. We've covered the uh, New Era windows. New Era windows is, is, windows is of that of that ilk, and it was inspired in part by what went on in Argentina. Uh, that will happen every now and then, but that's not a very frequent starting point for worker ownership. The second verb I talk about is is to start, and that is uh, the idea of cooperatives is really essential to that. And Mondragon is the big inspiration. Emilia Romana in Italy, uh, some groups in Quebec have also done some important work. Uh, that's another starting point for this idea to start. The third verb I talk about is to negotiate, where workers, usually through their unions, have negotiated ownership in exchange for some kind of contract change or contract concession, often in distress situations in the airline industry, in the steel industry, and the like, and I have a fair amount of experience with that. And the fourth verb is to buy, is when uh, workers as a group form themselves as a legal trust, an employee stock ownership trust, and literally buy a business, usually a healthy business, from a departing owner. So what do you think um, makes a company ripe for a, a negotiated um, buyout by the workers? I mean, the first is is economic viability, and the second is time. I mean, there has to be time to work out the details and the terms and the governance arrangements, um, but the business has to be sound, and uh, and the motives of the of the sellers have to be reasonably positive, and and there has to be trust. What do you think of today's enthusiasm for for worker owned co ops? It's a subject that has been getting infinitely more attention in right. the last five years than the five that preceded. Right. The United, the U.S. Federation of Worker Owned Co ops just had the conference, right. the tenth annual conference. They had more. More people there than ever, they said. That's right. 500 in attendance. No, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and uh, I came out of that movement myself. I still do some work in that sector. Um, I'm a little bit more focused, again, uh, on not just on startups, which is a lot of what that world is about. Um, and, you know, I tell tell those people in a friendly as friendly way as possible that it took Mondragon 56 years to get where they are today. And I want to get something done in my lifetime and in... And, in the years ahead, and I think we need to be looking at a diversified strategy. And at healthy businesses where baby boomers are, are reaching retirement age and are, have got to sell. Um, and if they can sell and use a cooperative structure, if that's what's compelling, that's great. But there are other structures that are in some ways easier to de- negotiate with, you know, with banks and so forth that can be made as democratic as mm-hmm. a cooperative. Let's take a look at a video, a trailer for a documentary called We the Owners that talks about this sector, a sector of corporations that are employing between 140,000 workers, worker owners through something called an ESOP. What is that? An ESOP is an employee stock ownership plan. 
actually most appropriately known as Employee Stock Ownership Trust, because the legal trust represents all employees, and it accomplishes the thing which seems most impossible to people. How can workers who have no money buy a business? They can do that by being organized as members of this trust, and they go to the bank and borrow money to be able to buy out companies. There are 10,000 of these companies that employ about 11,000, 11 million workers around the country. And it's been in federal law since 1974. All right, so we'll take a look at the film and then come back and talk about it. Very good. My name is Michael Miller. I go by Miller at the brewery. I'm 37 years old. I work for a new Belgian brewing company. I treat my job like it's like it's my own business. We believe in ownership in the United States. We believe in individual responsibility. And we want people to own the things that are core to their existence. But somehow or other, we forgot to extend that to the workplace. My name is Carlos Crabtree. I work as a project executive at DPR Construction. DPR Construction is a national builder focused on primarily technical market sectors. We talked a little bit about the culture and how it would operate, that it would be innovative and different from the traditional construction company. Uh, my name is Wade Andrews. I'm a co-owner of Namaste Solar and also a residential lead installer. Everything is interconnected. Everything is interdependent. And that's really the approach that we bring to our business, that the community, the economy, the environment, they are all connected. The whole thrust of science is to make the capital worker endlessly and progressively more productive. The combination of open book management, employee ownership, and what we call high involvement culture, that's an incredibly powerful thing. Because I'm an owner in New Belgium and there's open book management, then I'm able to do this and do a half a million dollar transaction. There's a, there's a company that's, that's featured in there, New Belgium Brewing Company, uh, Kim Jordan's wonderful woman who with her husband founded this business, uh, has reached, uh, a, she's a young and vital, probably in her late fifties or something, but did some advanced planning and looking down the road and did not want to sell to one of the big beer companies that wanted to keep it independent, wanted to keep that legacy alive. And she has proceeded to sell internally to her employees to, through using this ESOP structure. It's about, I think she has about 350 employees and she is, Setting up, they are setting up a whole new operation in Asheville, North Carolina. They're reproducing what they've done in Fort Collins, Colorado, and and doing it in North Carolina. It's an example of again, there are lots of these baby boomer-owned businesses where the owners do wish to cash out. They want to retire. They want to get rewarded for what they've done, uh, but they are not necessarily looking for the for the last buck, for the the highest buck. They will sell internally for a market price to an ESOP trust representing their employees. They will get tax advantages for doing so, and the jobs are saved. I just look back to the history of uh, the U.S. after the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. where you had workers in, I think it was the cod industry. Yeah. Cod fishing ships have been, been used as part of the Navy in, in the war. Um, resisting a government plan. The government plan had been to stimulate the, in the, the industry by giving a stimulus, in a sense, to the owners. And the workers had the power to say, no, wait a minute, we want to go back to the pre-revolutionary time when we got a share of 
what came to these companies, and they got, I think, 60% of that at the that's end. That's right, that's right. Now, these values are very old, and that is, in fact, probably the most optimistic fact in terms of looking at the future of this idea, is looking at the history of this idea. So tell us some more. Is that, is that this, this idea existed, uh, this idea came into the, the American scene with the earliest labor movement, with the Knights of Labor and the National Labor Union. These were, these were pre-AFL-CIO organizations. This is 19th century. This is early to mid-19th century. This is as industrialization was just coming to town. And these people whose, whose parents and grandparents had fought in the Revolutionary War uh, thought of themselves as Republicans in the sense that they were, had fit, fought for a republic. They were asking the question that if, if industry is here to stay, if the steam engine is here to stay, then why aren't these businesses that were going to get set up organized on the same Republican, late Democratic uh, value set of what we've just fought a war for? Uh, and those values, I think, are very deep uh, in American culture. They're, these, they're values in part of collective self-reliance and self-help. Uh, and they haven't gone away. It's before a lot of the left movements got started in, in the United States. I mean, this is 1820, 1840. You know, Karl Marx was a young man. Mm-hmm. You know, he hadn't written anything yet. So, so there were, there were ideas that were out there, uh, and in circulation, these ideas of people, let's do this together ourselves, uh, that weren't dependent on complex mm. left ideologies. I'm, Left myself, but I don't. You don't. Yeah. We don't have to pass these ideas through that, through that lens. Well, you think. you raised Marx, and I mentioned to Thomas. I mentioned Thomas Piketty at, at the right. beginning. Their teachings and the analysis, at least, that Piketty would say that he's brought because he doesn't think it's an ideology, but an analysis, right, is of a system that is necessarily going to produce the kind of compounding wealth that we've that we see yeah. reflected in Piketty's numbers and necessarily of course then also poverty um, you disagree clearly well I, I disagree with Piketty's solutions I mean I think I think he's his analysis is very useful but the the solutions if if capital is is winning this race against labor if if you know, and, and it is, then one question we might ask is how do we include more people in capital and not just look at engineering the wage side of the equation? Uh, and, and we needn't restrict ourselves to the workplace. That's a very important one. We should be looking at sky trusts that give citizens ownership stakes, the Alaska Permanent Fund. We should be looking at ownership of sports teams by communities. We should be looking... But the, but the workplace is a pretty fundamental part of that. And, you know, we can take care of the concerns that people have about diversification. We don't, we want people to not have their entire retirement based in their place of work so we can have outside retirement plans for them while they own their businesses. That's one traditional concern that mainstream people bring to this idea. But at the end of the day, you know, you're, you, the only way you're going to bridge this capital labor gap, it, I think, is to include more people in capital structures. So with respect to the criticism that this is a system that is built on extracting profits from workers to the disadvantage of the workers, you think there's some wiggle room there? It's, it's a question of who's the profit going to. And the profit is going to the wrong people. The profit is going to speculators. The profit's going to rentiers, whatever. It's going to people who are betting on horses. It's not going to the people who are actually making the profit. John Stuart Mill, you know, used to talk about competition as a, as a friendly rivalry and, and, and profits as a measure of what that is happening 
what is happening in terms of the performance of firms. I mean, I think, you know, I believe in, you know, a regulated economy. I believe that, that even in a future world of worker-owned businesses, we still need a state that is making sure that things are being done fairly. But I, I don't see markets as the problem. I see the ownership structures as the problem. I create nothing. I own. Don't you dare speak of the commonwealth To become every man for himself Rich and poor, void in between Raise a wire, gay communities The wealthiest anomalies With their own privatized police While the silent majority We'll say it's for the best Obey the corporate American dream. In the time we have left, I want to deal with a couple of other questions that you sent in. One that I found particularly intriguing has to do with Uber, the new service uh, everywhere in the United States, or at least in large cities, that is competing with taxi companies. Uh, this is a, a, an arrangement in which you call a telephone number or you use a app on your telephone uh, to summon a car and a driver who comes and fetches you like a cab might have, like a taxi cab in the past did, and takes you wherever you're going. It's all paid for by your smartphone, etc., etc., etc. And the questions that are coming in typically ask me the following. Isn't this a good thing? Aren't there lots of people getting jobs, often using their own automobile uh, to do this? Isn't this a marvelous new way to use uh, technology that we couldn't do before? And aren't the taxi companies and the regulators and the taxi drivers just kind of old-fashioned fuddy-duddies holding back new technology? And therefore, shouldn't we all support Uber? By the way, Uber is clever in its advertising program. It refers to itself as part of the, I couldn't make this up, sharing economy. Okay, let's talk about this. We need some history just to make sure we're all on the ground here. In every industry I am aware of, where capitalist enterprises got involved to make money by producing food or producing clothing or producing you name it. Here's what happened sooner or later. In the competitive struggle of the capitalist enterprises, one with the other, where you make money if you succeed and you go out of business if you don't where everything is about cutting corners so you can save on costs and maybe lower your price and that way beat your competitor, etc., etc. In every industry, sooner or later, and it's usually sooner, it was found that some of these capitalist competitors were taking risks with our lives in order to make money. They were producing food that was contaminated, that was unhealthy. And it was, went so far that great writers in American history, Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, and a whole host of others, had to write stunning exposés. By the way, people have been doing that ever since, because this problem never goes away. And so we developed 
guess what? A government regulation agency, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, to be particular, to regulate and control because capitalists left to themselves will put profits ahead of what they ought to be doing, which is serving us as, as the customers. So we've had regulation because of capitalism. The taxi industry is no different. As the taxi industry developed, capitalists became involved. They hired teams of drivers. Guess what happened? They weren't as careful over time as they should have been about training the drivers. They weren't as careful as they should have been about maintaining the cabs. They weren't as careful as they should have been about providing insurance so that if you have an accident, you can recover as an innocent uh passenger in a taxi. So guess what happened? We regulated taxis. Here in New York, for example, we have a taxi and limousine commission that supervises and makes sure that we're safe, because to rely on private enterprise to do that doesn't work. That's what our history shows. So what is Uber doing? Well, Uber is doing what always happens. After a while, when the regulators kind of work it out, we're going to make you have a good insurance, say, in the cab industry. We're going to make sure you have a insurance. We're going to make sure you maintain the quality of the engine and the other running parts of the taxi. We're going to make sure you have a proper license. We're going to make sure you're a reliable person. All of the important things anyone sitting in a taxi wants to know, the regulators made sure. And they said that includes paying a decent living wage to a taxi driver so that he or she isn't forced to do things that could end up making it difficult for a passenger because the worker is too tired, because he or she has to have three jobs to get by, etc., etc. So regulation ends up giving workers a decent wage, giving the companies a rate of profit they can live with, and making this system do what it was set up to do. It's then only, <clears throat> excuse me, a matter of time until an enterprising new capitalist comes in and says, wait a minute, maybe I can figure out a way not to pay workers what the taxi drivers are getting, not to cover myself with insurance the way they have to, not to be careful about who I hire the way they have to, and therefore I can do it a little more cheaply and I can get customers to leave the regulated industry and come to the unregulated ones. And often they succeed. And that's what Uber is, an attempt to break down the old arrangement and start what? Start it all over again. Because if Uber does it, so will the others. There's half a dozen companies doing what Uber now does, providing the same kind of independent driver riding system. And guess what? They're already having problems with unqualified drivers, insufficiently insured vehicles, inadequately maintained vehicle. They're rewriting the history again. And you know what's going to happen? It's already happening in certain cities in America and in other countries. Uber is being besieged by people who say we need, you guessed it, government regulation to prevent them from doing exactly what the car taxi companies in the beginning also did. So don't be fooled. This isn't about new technology. 
If that's what we wanted to deal with, if we really have a new technology that's better, then a reasonable way to handle it would be for the new technology to be integrated into the existing taxi business. Let's figure out how to do that. That takes into account that we want and need safe rides, that we want to pay people a reasonable wage and salary for the work they do, and that we want it all to be a safe, regulated business. We didn't do that. We don't even know how to do that in this society. So what we do is we wait until the only way the new technology can be brought in is by a ridiculous rebeginning of a history whose end we already know. Meanwhile, large numbers of people are subjected to unsafe rides, and the salary level of people in the industry is depressed. Taxi drivers are terrified about their own future. What a mess. And to say that capitalism is a paragon of efficiency, given what I've just told you, is too funny for words. was a kid you told me how to slit a throat and make it feel like a kiss taught me the value of hard work by sitting on your ass while it's spread it in the french fry bats got a 10 cent raise couldn't live off that the global newswire associated press announced this january that it'll no longer refer to the app-based cab hail service uber as ride sharing the move follows criticism that services like Uber and Lyft are very far from sharing. In fact, they're taking more than they're giving. That's certainly the view of Beravi Desai, co-founder and director of the National Taxi Workers Alliance. Desai told Grit TV this week that while it characterizes itself as an innovative disruption, Uber's more like Walmart on wheels. They're not democratizing the workplace, she said. They're deregulating it, or rather re-regulating it, to the benefit of app-owning bosses and the detriment of drivers. Minimum guaranteed wages, health and safety insurance, the chance to negotiate collectively. Taxi drivers fought decades for those minimal protections, says Desai. Now in comes Uber and behind the sharing spin. What's it really want? She says, quote, it's nothing less than the reorganization of the economy. The worker contributes the car, the gas, the training and the risk. And in return for being called an independent contractor, they make more or less the same money as they would working for a fleet. They may pick up more rides more quickly and drive more hours, but that should raise real safety concerns. Doug Hemwood, reporting for The Nation, found taxi drivers in Chicago and Los Angeles making around $12 an hour after expenses, about the same as other drivers. Former driver John Liss, also in The Nation, writes that, quote, for all the convenience Uber may offer its users, one of its primary byproducts has been the degradation of working-class jobs that once generated a living wage. Nor, as Liss points out, does Uber have any responsibility to serve everyone, only the smartphone-clutching, credit-card-swiping few, even as prices soar and taxi supply shrinks for the rest of us. That said, the status quo wasn't perfect for taxi drivers pre-Uber any more than it was for part-time retail workers pre-Walmart. 
The boss's pitch that workers can now be partners, sharers, associates, the euphemisms mount, works not only because people are desperate, but also because, well, being a worker has never brought with it the economic power or cultural pride in race to the top America that it has in countries where unions have been less devastated. But still, Uber better watch out. Today, the taxi workers are at work on their own app, and as we report in our latest documentary, Own the Change, hundreds of taxi drivers are becoming worker owners by creating their own worker-owned companies like Madison's Union Cab, a cooperative. Redesign the economy? Two can play at that game. As Desai says, I love a good disruption, but I love it in favor of poor people and working people. In the marketplace, our people benefit from direct and indirect business ownership. There are currently close to 10 million self-employed workers in the United States. That's nearly 9% of total civilian employment. And millions more hope to own a business someday. Furthermore, over 47 million individuals reap the rewards of free enterprise through stock ownership in the vast number of companies listed on the U.S. stock exchanges. I can't help but believe that in the future we'll see in the United States and throughout the Western world an increasing trend toward the next logical step, employee ownership. It's a path that benefits a free people. As I mentioned earlier, my wife and I belong to a food co-op in the Los Angeles area. So I'm pleased to introduce one of the leading lights of the cooperative movement. His name is David J. Thompson, and he is the president of Twin Pines Cooperative Foundation. Mr. Thompson has worked for national cooperative organizations all over the world and specializes in funding the capital needs for these organizations. He's the author of Weaver of Dreams founders of the modern cooperative movement, and has been inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, David J. Thompson. Well, thank you very, very much. I'm very, very pleased to be here, and it's always a pleasure to be a part of whatever Ralph is thinking about. Well, thank you again, David. There's arguably no person who knows more about consumer co-ops in the United States, Canada, Britain than our guest today, David Thompson. And I want to give a predicate here before we have a conversation, David, that the principal model of business in this country is a stock-held corporation. It could be small business, proprietary, by a family, or it could be the multinational corporate giants. Consumer cooperatives throughout American history have provided an alternative way of doing business. And you can see them all around. Credit unions are cooperatives. 80, 90 million people belong to credit unions. There are food co-ops. There are housing co-ops. These are businesses that are legally owned by their customers. So I want to ask you, David, tell our listeners who may not be that familiar with consumer cooperatives why you think it's a superior way of delivering goods and services in a global world. Well, I think that your description is very, very good, Ralph. The cooperative as a form of business, I think, is 
superior because it is the one business that is responding directly to the needs of the consumers. It isn't in pursuit of capital gain. It isn't in pursuit of wealth based upon the return on the investment to the shareholder. It is based upon fulfilling the economic and sometimes social needs of the members as uh, an effective way of, uh, as is possible. And that is why, in many ways, credit unions are the most economically efficient banking system in the United States. Most people don't know that doing business with a credit union um, costs you less because of its efficiencies, and it is also the highest return on your savings, even though in this particular era, that rate is not terribly good anywhere. But cooperatives are responding to the needs of those members. They are in business to fulfill the needs of those members. Their role is to provide something in the marketplace which is of a better quality or a lower cost than the rest of what is going on. And so, therefore, I think it is a very, very superior model. Before we go on to the accelerating growth of food co-ops around the country, such as in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, but also all over the country and the increasing farmer-to-consumer markets, how are these consumer cooperatives governed? In other words, who, who runs them? We know that legally they're owned by their consumers who shop. How are they governed? And what's the problem in the governance that keeps consumer co-ops that give better returns to the consumer than big companies from spreading rapidly all over the country? Well, as I point out in my book, Weavers of Dreams, the interesting thing is that the first co-op that got the attention of people was in Rochdale, England, which is about 37 miles away from where I was born. And the rule that they established at that time in 1844 was that the member, being a human being, had a share and one vote in the activities of the cooperative. One member, one vote, right? Correct. Okay. Right. And this was to separate itself from the joint stock companies that were being created almost at the same time where the voting power was associated with the number of shares that you held and therefore it was a relationship of wealth to votes versus the co-op's primacy of making the member, the human being, one vote per person. And so democracy came in co-ops even prior to political democracy in Britain because the one member, one vote thing as a human being didn't happen until about 1919 when women were finally given the right to vote in England and people had an equal vote. So the democracy of a cooperative was established long before political democracy has become a reality in the world. And isn't one of the main problems holding back consumer co-ops, and we'll talk about producer co-ops in a minute, there are two kinds of co-ops, like farm producer co-ops, isn't one of the problems holding back that the 
consumers who own their co-ops don't spend enough time on their duties as owners, that they prefer convenience and they don't spend enough time running and expanding the co-op and making it take even better stands in terms of what it buys and what it sells ecologically, in terms of labor conditions and suppliers and so forth. I don't think that those reasons in particular are why the consumer cooperative movement has not grown as much as it could and should. I would say that organizing a cooperative takes a lot more work. It takes a board of directors, and you had asked earlier, but the boards that are in charge of these cooperatives are all elected on a one-member, one-vote basis by the voting members of that co-op. Um, most of these cooperatives are extremely locally based, so they may have only a three to five mile radius of which their members come from. So they are the most locally owned, community owned business in the United States. But those cooperatives are each pursuing uh, goals that they set for themselves. So it's not as though their whole foods and decisions are made at the main office and that is then done at every whole foods store in the country. Each of our cooperatives uh, has its own democracy, has its own goals, sets its own standards and works that way. So it's a little bit more cumbersome, as, as you might say, for a democracy to work that way. But at least at the local level, that's how it is doing its business. That's how it is performing the worth that it provides to its members, developing the policies about how to relate to organic farmers and local farmers and products on the shelf and different things like that. That takes time. But I think that the key reason why cooperatives have um, limitations on what they do is, in truth, the access to capital. We are not able to go to the stock market. We are not able to promise people high returns on investment capital and total control over what they do. We have to get capital the hard way. We have to get it from our members. And we have to work a lot with our members to get them to understand how important capital is, because if we don't get capital from members and we are a growing cooperative, then we have to borrow it from banks and credit unions and other organizations. And that is usually more costly than getting it from the members. And it all has to be assembled and the co-op has to be running well and the co-op has to have good resources and collateral to be able to borrow. That's why the consumer engagement is so important. The right. Berkeley Food Co-op, which is a big store in Berkeley, collapsed because not only did they fight about, you know, whether they should sell cigarettes or not, or issues dealing with the Vietnam War, but there wasn't enough engagement by the broad membership and that collapsed, but the food co-ops are rising again. And what you just said reminds me of something we worked on in common back in 1977-78 under the Carter administration. We worked to get through Congress, the National Consumer Cooperative Bank, to provide loans or to provide capital to all kinds of consumers, including low-income consumers or a special unit in the bank. 
And then Reagan became president, and he privatized the bank. And then the bank dropped the word consumer, so it's just called the National Cooperative Bank. Tell me, that was considered, at least we like to have it considered, as a high point in rapid expansion of all kinds of co-ops. And the bank has put most of its loans into the housing co-ops. What's your view now, you know, many years later, David, looking back on how the bank has done in contrast to its promise? Well, the bank has had its ups and downs. And first, I would like to thank you for the efforts that you put in during that time, which is in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, you and your staff, and in particular, I think of Mitch Rosk's work. Yeah. Um, that was so important in getting the bank adopted by Congress, and I think that you had a lot of influence over President Carter, I'm looking to this as one of his more progressive actions that it took. So the bank was a very critical part of my life and your life for a number of years, and we were all glad to see it started. But as we got started, and I remembered, I, I went to Washington as the first co-op employee of the bank. And then three months later, Reagan took power and David Stockman and others, then as, as he was head of Congressional Budget Office, did everything possible to put the bank out of business. And we were in a rear guard action for three to four years, looking for a way in which we could save the bank and save it to be able to do some of the things that it had originally tried to do. The bank, regretfully, had to make lots of changes, which weren't always the best for what we were trying to do. But Chuck Snyder, who is now the president of the bank, has been doing a much better job over the past decade in pulling the bank back to the roots that it had. And at one point, the bank changed its name to just NCB, and luckily, Chuck uh, listened to people about that, and they have now changed their name back to National Cooperative Bank, and they are doing many, many more things according to what they were supposed to do with their roots. So, Yeah, and you know, David, for listeners who want to start a co-op in their community, just contact the National Cooperative Bank. There were times when the, the bank had more loan capacity than demand. And uh, right. especially if you're in a low-income area, they have a special unit to help people start co-ops in their local neighborhood. And so just contact National Cooperative Banks in Washington, D.C. Use it. They've got plenty of opportunity to help you. Bertrand Russell, the great scientist philosopher in England, once said, quote, the only thing that will redeem mankind is cooperation. End quote. It just makes for happier neighborhoods and communities. And you got the National Cooperative Bank to have great pamphlets and materials to explain to your friends who don't know anything about co-ops, about the history of co-ops. So we're out of time, unfortunately, David. How can people reach you? Give all your contact numbers. Well, thank you very much, Ralph. You're just so wonderful. I can be reached through the Twin Pines Cooperative Foundation. We have a website, www.community.coop, 
We run 40 different community funds for cooperatives around the country, and so we are providing around about $2 million of equity capital for the growth of the new cooperatives. My number, if people want to call me, is 530-757-2233, and we're happy to be of assistance to anybody who is looking to start a cooperative or to grow a cooperative or to build a cooperative economy, because that, for us, is the best way to bring peace about. And by the way, I once heard Bertrand Russell speak at an anti-war rally in London in 1958, so I'm glad you brought him up. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, nationwide Next System teach-ins via the Next System Project. Silicon Valley companies talk a lot about disrupting the market, but sidestepping regulations that protect the public and ignoring basic worker rights doesn't make a company revolutionary or innovative. It just hurts everyone else. Any common criminal can operate a business in this way, and no one would praise them for it. It's the money they make that blinds us to their deep flaws. But the system we live in is structured to help and reward those who are out to make a buck while hindering those who value working collectively toward a better future for all. That's why we need a new system. The Next System Project is an ambitious multi-year initiative aimed at thinking boldly about what is required to deal with the systemic challenges the United States faces now and in the future. Working with a broad group of researchers, theorists, and activists, they seek to launch a national debate on the nature of the next system. Using the best research, understanding, and strategic thinking, on-the-ground organizing, and development experience, their goal is to refine and publicize comprehensive alternative political economic system models, fundamentally different from anything we've seen before, that are capable of delivering superior social, economic, and ecological outcomes. But if you're thinking, well, I'm not an economist, or I'll just leave that up to the people in charge, think again. This project is about you and your thoughts and ideas. That's why this spring, the Next System Project launched Next System Teach-Ins at colleges and universities across the country. These teach-ins aim to engage students, faculty, and the local community in a practical, participatory forum for study, debate, and organizing around pressing social, political, and economic issues. The inaugural teach-ins in Madison, Wisconsin, and New York City took place in early March, but this April, there are teach-ins scheduled across the country. To find one near you or register to host one where you live, visit teachins.thenextsystem.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fundamentally changing our broken economic, political, and social systems is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the next system teach-ins via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Look, we can still hate the players, but the bottom line is, we have to upend the game help create a system that works for us all. Everybody says they want change, but nobody wants-
I think Uber and Airbnb exist to prevent the equivalent of Wikipedia arising in the taxi space and the apartment space. Because if they hadn't pre-colonized those spaces, um, we would have tools where we share apartments and share taxi rides or find taxi rides, but those tools will be tools in the hands of either ourselves or even the industry, the yellow cab drivers who are, you know, I know every New Yorker knows and loves that they they might, in other countries, that's what happens. You know, in Greece, uh, the yellow cab drivers have an app. You can see the guy's face, so you know it's a real person. Uh, you get into it, you rate him. If he's no good, he doesn't get on the app again. Um, that's, that's, that's information technology working for everybody. Um, when information technology works only for the company with a multi-billion dollar valuation, which can only be justified by conquering the world uh, forever and for all time, I begin to worry because I think what's happening here is corporations moving into the space of what I was quite happy a year ago to call the shared economy. Now, people, when they say the word shared economy, they, they spit the next sentence. They, they, they worry that the shared economy, the sharing economy, is becoming a kind of rip-off economy. And um, people are worried about it, especially here in Europe. You may know that you know, in Amsterdam, yes. in, in Holland, uh, Uber's offices were raided, um, by the police, you know, it's been declared illegal. There's huge battles going on throughout the rest of Europe. Well, we're starting to see actually some of that, at least in terms of the way that Uber defines itself, right? I mean, yeah. it, it argues it's a, um, it's simply hiring private contractors. Well, if yeah. that's the case, then what could happen is, I mean, theoretically, right? This is all they're providing is this sort of brokerage, uh, yeah. technology. A, yeah. And there's no reason why, the the drivers themselves couldn't. Uh, as There's a no reason why a local why, why a local government like New York right. City or like London couldn't, could, couldn't set up its own app. This is the weird thing. Okay, now okay, but but good, you know, fair play to Uber. They set up their app, and and that's good for them. And and the the problem is that the valuation of the company is kind of predicated on on it dominating the world. Okay, I don't think it's going to dominate the world. And when you ask people who study the evolution, the very rapid evolution of these one-time monopolistic uh, kind of herogram companies, uh, they always basically say to you one word, Blackberry, Blackberry. You remember that? Mm -hmm. Blackberry. Who has a Blackberry? No. Um, And we may in 10 years' time ask, I think in 10 years' time we'll see Uber and Airbnb as the alta vista of the sharing economy. The sharing economy is going to be much more like Wikipedia than it is going to be like Uber. But let's, you know, let, well, well, let a but, thousand but flowers you know? boom. Let's have, let's have a thousand models, but let's not have one that dominates everything. Well, how do you know that just as uh, uh, we predict that Uber will be the Alta Vista uh, in 10 years, that there won't be a... Uh, another Uber to Alta Vista. In other words, I know. No, look, no, I don't. And what, what, look, one thing that I am absolutely pro is innovation and entrepreneurship. My model of moving beyond capitalism is based in many ways on an innovation and entrepreneurial spirit in a way that really annoys the traditional kind of socialist leftist version of post-capitalism. I say that it's possible to make the transition to a non-market economy by accentuating the positive about the sharing, the cooperation, the non-managed space that network technology gives us. 
it's not the only thing we're going to have to do because we're going to have to work out how to pay people. We may come to that. Um, but as we, I, I'm also in favor of the rapid automate, automation of the world. I don't think we should fear automation. But the reason we fear it is because we don't have the social uh, arrangements to enact it without making most people poor. So we should, we should step back and say, automation, AI, robotics are coming. Let's think of ways that everybody could participate in that rather than it's going to turn us into a kind of, um, it's going to be basically turn us into Elysium. You know, that Matt Damon film, Elysium. Right. Well, but where, where is the incentive, though, to make that transition as opposed to the capitalist instinct to, you know, to, uh, to, you know, even if it has to be, well, I mean, not just has to be, but, but artificially impose um, yeah. these uh, barriers that maintain the value of uh, this information in the context yeah. of your argument. Well, where, where are the incentives that we have to create them? And remember, we are creating perverse incentives. You know, there are courts all over the globe right now being asked to, to consider, is Uber legal? You know, um, Barcelona, the city in uh, the very, one of the big tourist spots in, in Spain, in Catalonia, Barcelona is, has more or less outlawed both Uber and Airbnb. And not only that, individual people who are putting their apartments on Airbnb are being told to register them as tourist apartments. Great, you can do that. You don't do it, you lose the apartment. Sorry. Um, we have too many tourists in this, in this city and we have a lot of empty registered, uh, small hotels that are very nice that where families for generations have built these businesses, we're not going to see them die. Uh, no, that's a social choice. Now, I know a lot, of, a lot of Americans love the idea of the free market, but to me, the free market is a free market on a level, level playing field. So the small business owner in Barcelona who's built their hotel and kept a clean sheet forever on the regulations you have to um, follow to have a hotel, you know what they are. They're very, very right. onerous in some European cities. Uh, they can't be competed with by some guy who decides to buy two apartments and let one on Airbnb. They can, as long as he plays by the same rules. So in a way, that there's a kind of, look, there's a kind of, let's protect ourselves against going too fast down the route of what technology allows us to do. But there's also a part of the story that says, let's accelerate what the technology allows us to do, but let's do it in a fair way. And society has to intervene through that little thing that we invented you know, you guys invented and created 250 years ago, the state, the federal government. The only way you're going to do it is by getting the government to say, here are the rules. And capitalism only survived 250 years ago, I argue, because the state set rules that it could prosper by. What we have to do now is the state has to step in and set new rules so that collaborative sharing Free stuff can prosper alongside the best of, the most dynamic, the most socially uh, positive parts of the market economy. So, you know, uh, this is the point where a lot of your listeners probably going to foam in at the mouth because it's not socialism, but it is. It is post-capitalism. It is the idea that we could move beyond the market economy using state intervention to reset the rules of what kind of businesses are going to prosper through technology.